in the resurrection appearances of Jesus is a little snapshot of what Jesus is inviting us into. It's this sense of Jesus is like the needle who has passed through the black shroud of death and come out the other side. And if we trust in Jesus, we are like the thread and we are united to Jesus and he will pull us through death to come out the other side. And he is, in the words of 1 Corinthians 15, he is the first fruits, which means he is the first signs of life that promise the resurrection to come, promise the bumper crop of of harvest, the harvest that's going to sort of rise up again from the dead. Hey, All Things listeners, whether you're listening on your favorite podcast app or on YouTube, please be sure to like and subscribe and maybe even leave a comment or review. Thanks so much. Welcome everybody to All Things, and I am so happy to welcome Glenn Scrivener to today's episode. Glenn, welcome. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you very much for having me. So Glenn, for those of you who don't know, though I imagine a lot of you do, is an author and a pastor, and I have had the privilege of hearing from him and reading his words and have really appreciated his cultural analysis, which is why I invited him to come on All Things today. Um, Glenn wrote a book that we're going to talk about, The Air We Breathe. I feel like it does such a great job of capturing this cultural moment, pointing to history, pointing the way forward. But Glenn, other than um, authoring and pastoring, tell us a little bit about where you're located what you like to do, who you are, a little more about your life. Sure. I am Emma's husband. I'm Ruby and JJ's dad. I grew up in Australia. I've lived more than half my life now in the UK. I was ordained in the Church of England, but I work now as an evangelist for Speak Life, which is a ministry that frees me up to go and do fun things like talk uh, talk on college campuses and at churches and write books and make videos and that sort of thing. And I love doing it. Oh, that's awesome. Okay, so you've lived then on at least two continents, Australia and now in Europe. Uh, which, Where do you like to live better? Which one's better? Oh, there's there's lots of good things about living uh, in Europe. It's, it's quite fun to travel around mm-hmm. here. And um, I, I do like an indoorsy culture where you can sort of snuggle up in a pub <laughs> around a fire and have indoorsy kind of long conversations into the night. But then I love going back to Australia and it's very outdoorsy and open and positive and and uh, so I, I just don't want to offend anyone is what I'm saying to you, Jen. <laughs> fair enough. I like it all. Yeah. Fair enough. Fair enough. And how about the US? You've spent some time here as, uh, traveling, I suppose. I think I've seen that online. Yeah. My dad lives in um, just near LA and my sister used to live uh, in Georgia. And so I've, oh, I've, I've been to the US maybe a couple of dozen times. So yeah, love love traveling to the US. I'm, I'm planning wow. on doing it again. Uh, at the end of this month. So that, that should be great. That's good. Where can you get the best coffee between the three places? Sydney, obviously. Sydney invented obviously. the flat white. And Australians are unduly proud of the fact that we have invented a kind of coffee, which really all it is is just proportions. All it is is 30 mils of espresso and 30 mils of uh, warmed milk. But we are very, very proud of ourselves mm. for having invented the flat white. But that that is my order of choice at Starbucks. Yeah, yeah, that's a good one. I hope I can test it myself one day in Sydney. That would be a joy. 
<laughs> it's a great place. It's it's in, you'll you'll have to like sell a kidney just to afford right. a coffee in Sydney. <laughs> it's one of the most expensive places in the world to live, but it's so nice. I love it's kind of it's kind of got that Manhattan feel, mm. um, the Sydney Central Business District, but but it's on a harbor on one of the largest harbors in the world, and it's when the sun is shining, which is usually um, it mm. just lights up like diamonds. And there's the Opera House and the Sydney Harbor Bridge, and it's my favorite place in the world. So come come to Sydney. I will shout you a coffee. Yes, thank you. That's good. Man, you went from the sunny, a sunny place to such a cloudy place. I, I know that's hard. I've lived in Europe Man, and that was hard. Although for me. Eastbourne is called the Sunshine Coast here in England, which just goes to show you that everything is relative. <laughs> My Australian family, they, they think it's hilarious because in Australia we have a Sunshine Coast. It's located about five kilometers from the center of the sun. You can hear your skin audibly crackling there. Um, oh, not hi. so in Eastbourne, but it's nice enough. Wow. Okay. Well, let's dive in. So this episode is going to air the week after Easter. So Mm -hmm. presumably most of our listeners have celebrated the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. And why I wanted to have you on this particular week, Glenn, is because in your book, The Air We Breathe, you talk about the Jesus revolution. I just appreciate that term. Um, Now it's funny because a movie has just come out with the same name, but I know that you wrote this book well before the movie. So what do you mean when you use Jesus Revolution throughout your book and when you talk about it? Yeah, it's not the Jesus Revolution did not begin in the 1970s. Uh, the Jesus Revolution um, is another name for Christianity um, because, in the words of historian Tom Holland, Christianity is the most disruptive, the most influential, and the most enduring revolution in human history. It has birthed the greatest sociological phenomenon the world has ever seen. That it, it has given rise to a movement that has upended our assumptions and our moral intuitions more than anything ever could. And it tells the story that is the most revolutionary story you could possibly tell. You've got the highest figure, Jesus Christ, descend to the lowest depths on the cross and then rise again to the highest heights in order to have a greater effect on more people for a longer duration than anything else possibly could. So you like to to inhabit the Jesus story is to inhabit the most revolutionary story the world has ever heard and it has in fact changed the world more than anything else ever could. So we tend to think of like religious people as being kind of stayed and died in the wool and conservative and backwards and um, just harking back to safer times when in fact when we're talking about um the religion of jesus i.e christianity when we're we're talking about his movement we're talking about something that is utterly revolutionary and is always churning up the world as as mary said you know in luke chapter one he casts down princes from their thrones and he raises up the lowly this is this is what god is always doing through his son jesus and so i'm very happy to be called a revolutionary Yes, yes. Okay, well, I'm tracking with you and just saying amen in my heart as I hear what you're saying. But I would imagine when you share this message, even with probably believers, maybe nominal believers, maybe even mature believers, there's probably got to be some skepticism there. Like really, Glenn, really a revolution, really the most pervasive, the most impactful um, religion or figure in history. I I would imagine there's some healthy skepticism there. Um, how do you approach that skepticism? Do you take it sort of one event or one example, or let's explore that? It, say I'm a skeptic. Let's explore it a little bit more. Where, where would you like to go with that? 
one thing I can do is um, just ask the skeptic to articulate what their skepticism is. Like when I say the word Christianity, what springs to mind? Why are you skeptical of, of Jesus and his movement? And usually what people will come up with are a list of adjectives. And they'll, they'll say things like, the trouble with Christianity is it is unequal, cruel, coercive, unenlightened, anti-science, restrictive, and regressive. They'll come up with those kinds of adjectives, but I haven't, I haven't uh, plucked those seven adjectives at random. Um, those are actually the opposites of a whole bunch of virtues that I think Christianity has brought to the world. So whereas we see Christianity as being unequal, um, actually, I think it's equality that, that Christianity has brought to the world. Rather than being cruel, I think Christianity has brought the, the value of compassion to the fore. Rather than being coercive, I think Christianity has established consent in our moral imaginations. Instead of being unenlightened, I think Christianity has brought enlightenment. Instead of being anti-science, I think Christianity actually birthed the modern scientific movement. Instead of being restrictive, I think abolition of the slave trade was a profoundly Christian movement. And instead of being regressive, I think the idea of progress has been given to us in the biblical worldview. And so... Even as people criticize Christianity, they cannot help but testify to these transcendent values. And my, my friends, they don't tend to think, my skeptical friends, they don't tend to think that they have transcendent values. But every time they bring a criticism, they are testifying to the fact that they are judging by certain standards. They expect mm -hmm. the world to be equal, compassionate, consensual, mm -hmm. enlightened, pro-science, pro-freedom and progressive. They, they expect these sorts of things. But it has been the Jesus revolution that has given us these values by which we are judging the church. And maybe one thing I, I can do for somebody is just kind of take them out of the year 2023 and put them back in the first century and put them into some Roman sandals and ask them to look around. And I think at that stage, they would see a world that is so, so very different. Mm -hmm. And if they want to ask the question, what has happened in the last 2023 years? Well, even the very fact that we are called the year 2023 <laughs> gives the answer. We are in the year of our Lord, 2023. And the difference in going from then to now is down to him. Mm. Well, let's let's go back to let's put those Roman sandals on then. Um, mm -hmm. Since we've just celebrated Easter, let's what happened after Christ rose from the dead? Yeah. Why did a revolution um, birth then? And and why do you call it a revolution? What what happened on the scene? Well, think about Easter because there there you've got Jesus on the Friday um, put to death under a, a capital charge and you know i guess the, the charge from the jews is is blasphemy he's, he's claiming to be the lord um according to the romans it's a, a charge of rebellion sedition he's he's claiming to be a king the reason why the romans are putting him to death is that the jews were not able to because they were under the thumb of of rome and and so only only the romans could do that but this this kind of tool called the cross is really one of the key implements by which the Roman Empire kept slaves down. It was uniquely called the slave's death. Other people died of crucifixion, but it, it was kind of called the slave's death because how are you going to have a, 
uh, an empire that is running off the back of slaves. It's 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 really the 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 burden of the empire was borne by slave labor. Um, but how are you going to have so many millions of of slaves among you? Um, you've got to always guard against the uprising of the slaves, and so you've got to have the most vicious deterrent at your disposal. And that's what the crucifixion. That's what crucifixion is. And so what you have in Christ dying on the cross is this massive placard that says, do not, do not walk the way of this wretched man. And on Good Friday, 2,000 odd years ago, Jesus died as that kind of a wretch, as the absolute lowest of the low, and all the powers of state were arrayed against him to crush him to death. And the big question we should all be asking is, why have any of us heard of Jesus of Nazareth? Um, Christianity should have died with Christ. Yeah. And yet, Christianity, yeah. far from <laughs> not dying with Christ, Christianity has risen from the dead 2,000 years ago. Mm. And it has become the most disruptive, the most influential, the most enduring revolution history has ever seen. How does anybody account for this? I, th I think the only account for this, the only account for Christianity having risen from the dead is that Christ himself rose from the dead right. and completely started to upend the kind of society that would put a Jesus of Nazareth to death. And so what you, what you start to see from the first century onwards is the overturning of this um, dominance hierarchy in which the emperor is at the top and the slaves are at the bottom, because in Christ there is this revolution where the king of all kings goes to the very bottom and dies the slave's death and rises again to invite us into a family where we are all brothers and sisters and nobody is a lord except Christ himself. And you start to get this equalizing influence and you start to get this compassionate influence that instead of eliminating the weak, there is a unique dignity now to the victim because even the, the Lord became the victim of crucifixion and the, and the victim became the victor in the resurrection. And suddenly we have a space for the weak and the marginalized and those that would mm -hmm. otherwise, otherwise be cut off. And, and instead of it being the survival of the fittest and the sacrifice of the weakest in the cross, you've got, my goodness, you've got the sacrifice of the fittest Christ so that we can have the survival of the weakest, us. And you start to have this compassion ethic and you start to have consent. You start to have all these sorts of things that, that really, if it weren't for the fact that Jesus rose from the dead, I don't know how you can explain world history. Mm. I'll, put it, I'll put it this way. Like the, the Big Bang happened or the, we, we started to understand the Big Bang when we started to see an expanding universe. A hundred years ago, physicists and astronomers, they looked out, they saw an expanding universe and they thought, ah, if we hit the rewind button, at some point you would go back to a singularity. And if there, was, if there is expansion now, there must have been an explosion then. Mm. And I, I'm just saying, you can do the same historically. Mm. You can hit rewind on this expanding universe of Christian mm. values and Christian civilization called the church. If you hit rewind, you end up back in the first century. There has been expansion. And my big question is, what was the explosion? And I happen to believe, along with other Christians around the world, the explosion was Christ did indeed rise again from the dead, just as he predicted, just as the Old Testament predicted. Mm -hmm. And that gives me an extra ex explanation for the expansion that has happened in this world. So for me, the, the belief in Easter, the belief in the resurrection is not one more improbability that I happen to believe. It's actually the explanation for what would otherwise be completely improbable and inexplicable. So yeah. that... 
that explosion at Easter mm. was the was the beginning point of this revolution. So good. So are you telling me, Glenn, that a virtue like compassion or lifting up the marginalized is not universal? I'm saying the reason why we see it as a value that is worthy of detecting in all kinds of societies, and it, it exists in all kinds of societies, mm -hmm. the reason why we detect it and um, see it for being this um, exceptionally virtuous moral value mm. is because of the example of Jesus and the Jesus revolution. Mm. So there is all sorts of compassion that happens all the time in all kinds of societies. But the moral framework that you need in order to look at examples of lifting up the weak and the marginalized and to see that as, as absolutely virtuous and, and the highest moral good you need to ha you need to look at the world through certain mm. certain goggles because nature itself s does not teach you to look after the weak right right nature itself is driven by the survival of the fittest and therefore the sacrifice of the weakest so nature is not is not telling you that it's a moral virtue. I mean, you might choose to look after the weak and the marginalized, but it, that might not help your tribe survive. What might help your tribe to survive is to eliminate the weak so that you can become stronger together. Mm. So there are always examples of compassion. There's always examples of kindness that we can find. Yeah. What I would ask people to do is notice why we are looking for compassion and why we are, why, why we are assuming that compassion is an unquestioned moral good mm -hmm. because I, I think it was Jesus that has taught, you know, through, through what's well, the Hebrew Bible that taught us this. And then Christ sort of takes the, the, the message to Israel and Israel kind of bursts the banks of old Testament um, ethnicity and floods the world with this new Jesus movement, which takes the Hebrew scriptures and applies them now to the nations. And so now in the Jesus revolution, what, what you've got is, a unique place for compassion, a unique place for forgiveness, a un unique place for lifting up the weak and the marginalized and the, and the lowly. Um, other people are always able to do it, which is why Jesus, when he told his great story about compassion, the Good Samaritan, puts an ethnic outsider in the role of the protagonist, right? It's, it's, the, good, it's the Samaritan that's good. Mm-hmm. So can people from beyond, you know, the people of God show great compassion. Oh, absolutely. Jesus taught sure. us that. Sure. <laughs> absolutely they can. But why is it that we that we so prize the action of that Samaritan as good and as mm -hmm. like this transcendent good? Mm -hmm. It's because of the example of Christ and it's because the Jesus revolution has taught us to see compassion in that way. Yeah, that's really helpful. And I feel like it's something that, I don't know, I, I would encourage people to grab your book or listen to your voice on podcasts and stuff um, because what you say is that we have been so impacted by the way of Christ that it is, as the title says, the air we breathe. So we don't even really notice it. I mean, the reason we value freedom, progress, equality, compassion, consent, you know, what a buzzword for our day. The reason we care about these things is because we have, this is, this is in our cultural DNA um, and it has so infiltrated the way we think and the way we um, talk about what really matters. And yet, if you aren't taught to sort of 
look for it in the ways that you're saying, I think we can assume, well, this is just who I am. You know, I was born caring about these things. I was born with these values. This is what everybody values. Um, but, but having traveled the world as you have, and as I have, we know that not these things aren't valued everywhere. The lifting up the lowly is not necessarily a value. Consent is not necessarily a value. Um, and we are the benefactors of the Jesus revolution having been, you know, seeped down through generations. Right, right, exactly. It's, it's, it's not natural or obvious or universal mm-hmm. to think that the, the lifting up of the weak is the most virtuous thing you could possibly do. Yeah. And so like when people say, oh, look at this culture here, um, it has a place for compassion. See, isn't that good? Um, I, I have absolutely no um, objection to that. And, and um, in many ways, whatever culture that is that people point to and say, isn't that a good thing? Um, I can say, what a great example to us all. We should be more like that. But I ju- what I really want to do is make us notice why we are pointing to that culture and that particular value. Why are we not pointing back to the Spartans and mm-hmm. their cultural virtue that was cruelty, right? And, right? and they would practice infanticide just like pretty much every ancient civilization would practice infanticide, the, the killing of... Um, offspring who you deem to be less valuable, whether that's because they're disabled or um, far more. It was it was little girls that they would expose and cause to die, rather than little boys. And uh, in in Sparta, they would they would put every single infant um, through their paces to see if they were strong and worthy of mm. of, of becoming a Spartan soldier. And if they weren't, um, then they would absolutely throw them down wells and that that sort of and and the cruelty of Sparta was a virtue and they didn't they didn't see compassion as a virtue they saw mm-hmm. compassion as a weakness. Right. Now, why is it that we will look to one culture that that prizes compassion and say, oh, they're good, and we look at the Spartans and, and say, oh, they're bad? What is it that stands above the compassionate culture? and the cruel culture and says that one is better than the other. It -hmm. seems that actually in the West, we have a sense of compassion being this superordinate value, this transcendent value that's high up above and it can say, oh no, we say yes to compassion and no to cruelty. What is it that it's taught us that? And what is it that makes us think that that is natural, obvious or universal? I'd say it's the fact that we've grown up from within the Jesus revolution. Yeah. Yeah. I also really appreciate, and I know that you interact with Tom Holland quite a bit and his book Dominion really helped me open my eyes to this reality. So that'd be another work I would definitely recommend um, our listeners to turn to, but let's, can we take this down maybe a specific path? Um, I write a lot about women's issues in the church and secular culture. A lot of my listeners are women. Let's talk about that because I think that the perception in secular culture right now is that the church is bad for women or the church, um, you know, mistreats women. There's me too. And church too. Um, the perception is that secular society mistreats women. I I think I hold that opinion by and large. Um, but the perception again, that the church or that that Christianity is against women, the Bible is against women. Hmm. Let's, let's just talk about women's issues from 2023 back to the time of Christ. What do you say to the woman who says, you want me to turn to Jesus? Well, his book, his way, his religion diminishes my value, does away with my value. Mm -hmm. I might share the story of um, 
Louise Perry, for instance. So we've we've interviewed her on our channel here at Speak Life. Um, she's a really interesting um, feminist. She might describe herself as a materialist feminist, mm -hmm. um, perhaps a post-liberal feminist. She she describes herself in lots of different ways, but but she does describe herself as a as a feminist. And she's just gone on this journey um, in the last ten years or so, in which she spent a lot of her twenties working in a rape crisis center, which taught her that um, our culture is speaking out both sides of its mouth when it's talking about sex. Because on the one hand, our culture says sex is absolutely nothing. It's a leisure activity. And at the same time, we say that sexual abuse is the worst kind of assault on a person it's possible to, to, to commit, right? Uh, and Louise Perry started to ask herself, well, which is it? Is it like a leisure activity? Well, like if, if a leisure activity goes wrong, you just give it a one-star review. Like, like, but when sex goes wrong, it feels like there's a, been a violation, there's a desecration, there's something sacred about sex. And that, that starts to interest her. And then lots of issues about uh, the trans lobby sort of came in in this rape, rape crisis center where she was, and she started to think to herself, no, I think, I think gender is real. I don't think it's interchangeable in that sense. And then the Me Too movement um, really got going, and she read Tom Holland's Dominion that you just um, mentioned then. And Tom Holland, at the end of Dominion, kind of says, isn't it interesting that Harvey Weinstein in our culture is a moral monster when if he had lived in Roman days, he would have been, who knows, like a senator probably. And the crimes of a Harvey Weinstein <clears throat> would be utterly invisible to an ancient person. There just wouldn't be categories to describe the wrongdoing of a Harvey Weinstein because in in ancient cultures, the right of a man to possess the body of any cultural inferior, including women, but also boys and slaves in the household, um, was an unquestioned right. And, and, so, and, and sex wasn't really that big of a deal for, for ancient peoples. And power structures were such that, well, of course, if you have more power than somebody, then you should exploit them. Like the, the idea that you should serve them or protect them because they are weaker is absolutely not a, a, a natural thought for the vast majority of, of humankind. The Me Too movement is a profoundly Christian movement. Yeah. So said Tom Holland. Yeah. Louise Perry cottons on and she's like, he's right. Mm -hmm. Where do we get all this stuff from, if not from Christianity? And she's just written a book called The Case Against the Sexual Revolution. In which she says that while some of the interests of women are served in the sexual revolution of the 1960s, many of women's interests have not been served at all by the sexual revolution of the 1960s. And that in, in, instead, um, we need a much richer vision for who humans are. And when she came onto our channel here, I was sort of asking her about the equality of the sexes and things like that. And she absolutely said, oh, look, this all comes from Christianity. The, the idea that men and women are equal comes absolutely from Christianity. The idea that um, whatever strength dif differentials there are between peoples and, and on average, there are significant strength differentials in upper body strength between men and women. It's Christianity that gives us the idea, therefore, 
men should use whatever strength they have in order to serve and protect and never to exploit yeah. those who don't have that same that same upper body strength etc um where do we where do we get the idea that sex is significant where do we get the idea that bodies are more like temples than playgrounds mm. which is what you need if you're going to have a me too movement where do we get the idea that power is to be used to serve rather than to dominate where do we get the idea that that strength is to be used to serve um it's it's all come from from christianity now, does that mean that the church has never been misogynistic or patriarchal in the worst sense of, of that word? No, it means sometimes the church has been horrifically misogynistic and maybe the church historic has been has done terrible things and maybe the church down the road mm. in the year 2023 has done terrible things. And, and sometimes the church has been absolutely the worst perpetrator of some of these church two crimes. Um, and sometimes the cover-ups have been as diabolical as the abuses. Um, and none of this is to say that the church is particularly good at upholding the values of equality, compassion, and mm. consent. Mm. Um, but at some stage, you've got to ask, where do these values of equality, compassion, and consent come from? And, and it's not because the church is very good at this, and the church always needs to be reforming and always needs mm. to get better at this stuff. But it's because there is there is Christ who stands above these values. This, there's Christ who stands above the church and embodying the kind of compassion that we all need to believe in. And he judges Christians as the, the diabolical sinners that we are and can be when we fail at these values. Um, but he is the one who actually gives us these values. And so if we, if we really want to have a problem with church abuse, if we really want to have a problem with misogyny, um, I would invite people to to draw closer to Jesus because I think he makes sense of those intuitions. Yeah. Wow. Thank you so much. I actually have heard Louise Perry as well. Um, I haven't read the book yet. I need to get my hands on it, but I've heard her on a handful of different podcasts and just really appreciate her perspective and yeah. knowing that she is not yet a believer. Um, she, at least the last I heard from her on a podcast was that she's not yet a Christian and yet she could zoom back and see um, the abuse that she was seeing in this rape center and where it came from and how to move toward and minister to women. And her eyes were sort of opened to the Jesus revolution as you call it, which I think is so helpful. Well, again, it's, it's the week after Easter, Glenn, can you leave us with a parting word? I, I wish we could continue talking. There's so much mm -hmm. more to be said. I want um, all of our listeners to grab the air we breathe and there will be a link to it in the show notes, um, but get a copy because this is a worthwhile um, conversation and needed perspective for our day as we seek to be salt and light. Um, but Glenn, would you leave us with just some gospel hope, a parting word, a, a, a post-Easter message for all of the listeners to go forth from this episode? I love uh, the post-Easter appearances of Jesus. And so I, I would encourage people to have a look at the gospels and just read from Easter Sunday forwards. Um, because what I think you get in the resurrection appearances of Jesus is a little snapshot of what Jesus is inviting us into. It's this sense of Jesus is like the needle who has passed through the black shroud of death and come out the other side. And if we trust in Jesus, we are like the thread and we are united to Jesus and he will pull us through death 
to come out the other side. And he is, in the words of 1 Corinthians 15, he is the first fruits, which means he is the first signs of life that promise the resurrection to come, promise the bumper crop of, har- of harvest, the harvest that's going to sort of rise up again from the dead. And so what we see Jesus doing in those post-resurrection appearances is a foretaste of the new creation that's coming. And so what does he do? He goes for long country walks with his friends. He um, meals long into the night talking about the stuff that really matters. There's, there's tear-filled reunions. There's barbecues on the beach. There's fishing with your friends. There's feasting and grace and Jesus, our battle-scarred brother, face-to-face. And... You think to yourself as you as you read those post-resurrection appearances, that's the life. Yeah. You know, when, whenever I read about Jesus on the road to Emmaus or Jesus fishing with his friends or gathered around a fire, talking about the things that really matter, having those tear-filled reunions, I just think to myself, that's the life. And the Bible mm-hmm. says, Yeah, that's eternal life. That's that is what Easter is all about. That is that is what Easter has pioneered for us. Life beyond the dead is embodied physical feasting joy oh wow amen well i couldn't have asked for a more hopeful word glenn thank you so much for sending us out with that and thank you for joining us on all things absolute pleasure thank you and thank you everybody else for tuning in we really appreciate you listening happy easter Hey, thanks so much for listening to All Things, where we look at current events and cultural trends through a Christian lens. All Things were created through Jesus and for Jesus, so we're seeking to apply his word to what's happening here and now.